So I remember, and maybe you guys remember your parents taking you on vacations um, when you were younger, but I remember specifically my parents took me and my two siblings on a vacation to the East Coast. And it was this big thing of we're going to take Montana people and show them what more than five stories looks like. Um, and we went to Washington, D.C., and then we would take a train up to New York. And when I got to D.C., I was kind of skeptical. I don't know how many of you guys have been to Washington, D.C., but here I am, a kid who spent most of my life uh, in Missoula, in Montana. This is my big downtown. Um, it, was, uh, it was kind of awkward. There was construction everywhere. All the national monuments were get, getting built. It, there was noise. There was unfriendly people. There was always people honking and screaming on the street. It was dirty. It was expensive. And I found really a limited amount of enjoyment in Washington, D.C., much to my parents' surprise. Because when parents, I have kids now, when I bring them places, I want them to be amazed. Be like, this is the greatest thing ever. And like my siblings are like, ah, whatever. It's noisy here. Can we go back to the hotel room? But then... We took a train to New York, and uh, we, when we got off the train, we're actually in Newark, New Jersey, which all New, New Yorkers make fun of Newark. Uh, and so we got off the train station, and all you see are these miles and miles of gray, lifeless, bleak New Jersey buildings and railroad tracks everywhere. And so it wasn't a good start, but then we, we get in uh, the subway, and we go under the Hudson River, and we come up in the 9-11 uh, memorial. Well, it wasn't a memorial then because it was recent, and so it was just this big empty crater in the ground. Um, and you get off there, and you kind of see this crazy thing like, this was this is still real, what happened here. Like, this is it's in shambles. And you walk up off the subway, um, and the first thing you encounter is the smell of urine in New York. It just smells like a bum peed there, because literally five seconds ago, a bum just peed there. Um, and and, and it, it, it was rank, and you move up out of it, and then you're just flooded by these guys with plastic bags trying to sell you, like, in-your-face bootleg copies of Jennifer Aniston movies. Uh, and it's just like, I don't want that. And then as soon as I get around that guy, the first thing I see is a street vendor selling shirts that has a 38 special on it that says, Welcome to New York, now duck, mother effer. I loved Washington, D.C. at that moment. What I experienced in New York in the first 15 minutes is like, D.C. is like Candyland. Let's go back there. And it's funny how perspective and knowledge often brings clarity and definition to our affections, doesn't it? We gain appreciation for certain things when we start to learn about the alternative or competing places, ideas, products. With the old adage, life's always greener on the other side of the fence. Well, sometimes we get to the other side of the fence, and we liked what we had. And the same is true with Christianity tonight. And tonight we're going to get some perspective. Paul is bringing us out of the subway of Romans, and he's going to expose us to the landscape of the human heart. And he's doing this for a purpose. We're in the introduction of Paul's letter um, in the book of Romans, and he's doing this because he's setting us up for greater clarity and greater affection later in the book. And what we're going to see tonight is this. We're going to see the good news of the gospel is first the bad news about us. The good news of the gospel is first the bad news about us. If this is your first time here, we only go up from this point. But we're going to get real um, tonight. And oftentimes when we hear this message of bad news, we often hear it in poor situations, poorly articulated and poorly represented. For instance, if you're down at Farmer's Market on Saturday, uh, there's a church that takes the corner of Broadway 
and Higgins every Saturday, and all they do is scream to you about how you are a sinner. And that's really the taste that our culture has of any message that says you're a sinner. But what the street preachers preached poorly and in isolation, Paul is going to bring, but he's going to hold intention with the hope of the gospel. It's not just your awful, but it's the whole gospel resting on the, the presuppositions that Paul is going to give us tonight. Because ultimately, we're going to talk about some bad, heavy news tonight. But as we talk about this, we're ultimately going to end up rejoicing in the good news. As one artist has put it, um, he says, I never knew what freedom was until I learned what prison means. Tonight, Paul wants us to know prison so that we can experience and know freedom. So let's pray. Um, Lord, this is uh, probably the fourth time we've prayed already tonight, and we don't want it to be a transition um, because that's not what prayer is. But we know in order to understand what this text is talking about, we need more than just mental assent that happens at the University of Montana. We need more than scholastics. We need more than education. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to not only hear what was said, but to understand it and to respond rightly to it. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you're gracious and kind tonight as we encounter your word. We thank you for good news and the bad news. We love you. We worship you. We give you this night. Praise in your name. Amen. So those of you who were with us last week, we ended on a high note last week. Paul is talking about the fame of Jesus, encouragement in the church, the proclamation of the gospel. And so we left here on a pretty joyful note, this go forth, this be, uh, be representatives of God's fame wherever we go, that be pervasive in your life. Um, and so it's interesting how Paul segues out of what we saw last week. This big triumphant gospel of God, glory of Christ, goodness of the gospel, encouraged by your faith. But then immediately, look at what Paul says, what Caleb just read for us. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this is really the first point we're going to look at tonight. And this is the good news about the gospel. I originally had it as I wrote my sermon this morning. This is the good news about man. But it's really not the good news about man. It's the good news about the gospel, which makes man good. And that's what Paul just explained here. We see this great news. Really, we see a good news, right? If anybody walked in right now, as I was reading that, they'd say, this Christianity thing, this is pretty great. We see in the gospel that God's power is made known in his salvation. God's power isn't made known on a billboard. God's power isn't made known simply through books. God's power is made known because he's a saving God. We like saving people. We make a billion movies about superheroes every year, and next year we'll make the same movie by a different director. We love the idea of people capable of saving people. We just see God does that. In this gospel, in the saving activity, we are declared righteous through faith. But then to repeat it, he also says, and we are saved because of our faith. Righteousness is both saving and a result of salvation. Faith is both saving and a result of being saved. And what Paul just outlined for us on a surface, no one takes offense to that. No one would take offense to the message that Jesus saves, that God saves people in power through faith to make men righteous because it's to everyone. 
not to the morally intellectual, or not to the high intellectual people, not only to the moral people, not only to white middle class Americans. He says to everyone, to the Jews and the Greek, the salvation of God is made known in his gospel. So isn't it kind of awkward at this point that Paul opens with, for I'm not ashamed. For I'm not ashamed of this gospel. You see, here's why it's kind of awkward. I'm, I have never once said in a conversation, I'm not ashamed to say it, but I love my wife. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? Because the assumption is like, that's, you should love your wife. You should not be ashamed of that. It's normal for you to love your wife. However, there are many times I have said this phrase. I'm not ashamed to say this, but I love me some T-Swift. Okay? Now, why is it normal and frequent for me to say that, but never for it to, to be said about my wife? Because I understand, and I add that clause because I understand that there are many people who don't like Taylor Swift. You see, when we open up by saying we're not ashamed of something, there's this presupposition that there are people who are normally put off by what it is that we claim to accept. That there are differing views and differing opinions on this. You see, the good news of the gospel, which Paul claims, is wonderful news for all who believe. It is. We have salvation. We have life. We have righteousness. A righteousness which is foreign to us, which becomes innate through God, through faith, for all men. However, the subtle nuance of what Paul is just saying here is the reality that at one time, you were not saved. At one time, you were not alive. And at one time, you were not right before God. I remember uh, growing up as a kid and always being amazed, you know, when you drive by stores at night and they have lights on inside the stores, dim lights, but they're on. And I was always like, why do they have lights on? That makes it easier for someone to come in and see where all the good things are and take them out. That's what I thought in my mind. It's like, turn the lights off. People don't know what's going on. But my dad's like, no, no, they leave them on to deter people from coming in and breaking things. You see, in my mind, the greatest fear was darkness. The darkness represents the unknown. The darkness represents the boogeyman and monsters and things under my bed. I'm not going into a room that's dark. But what's interesting is as we begin to grow up, those lights remain effective for a reason. As we grow, our fears begin to shift. We're no longer afraid of the dark. Instead, we're afraid of the light. Because ultimately, each and every one of us comes to a realization at one point that we're not scared of what we don't know about ourselves. Where the darkness represents the unknown, we're no longer scared about what we don't know. Instead, when we, when we soberly look at ourselves, we're scared of what we know to be intimately true about ourselves. We're scared of the light. We're scared of being known. We're scared of introspection. What makes the internet so wonderful is, again, we talked about this Ashley Madison scandal going on, is the aspect of anonymity. You can conceal yourself. You can disguise yourself. You can hide yourself. But the gospel, as we just saw, reveals things, doesn't it? Look at what we just saw in verse 17. 
For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here's one thing the gospel reveals. The gospel reveals, like a light shining in a dark place, it reveals the righteousness of God in us. That's good. That's a good revelation. And that's one option of being viewed by God. To be revealed, to have light shown on you, and to be seen as righteous before God from our faith, for our faith, living through our faith. But there's also another revelation that can happen when we encounter the gospel. Another revealing process that happens. And we see that in verse 18. Paul continues, the very next verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. One thing that can be revealed about us is that we're found right before God. There are two options, being found right before God and the other revelation which happens and you're deserving of God's wrath because of your unrighteousness before God. And naturally, we should fear that. Jesus knew this. He knew this aspect of fear in John 3, verses 19 through 20, when Jesus himself said this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works shall be exposed. So the first part, the good news about the gospel, in Paul's letter right now, we're shelving that already. We're done with that point. The second point, which Paul is going to spend the most of the time on tonight, is this. And that's the bad news about man. So now we see why Paul said, he opens with, now I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed? Because it's true. We should not be ashamed of truth because it's saving, because it's truthful, and because it's good. But why does Paul perceive a tendency to be ashamed? Right? He's not writing this just to express himself to the people in Rome. He's writing this knowing that people in Rome will have a tendency to be ashamed of the gospel. Right now, if, if someone on a loudspeaker on campus in your room said, hey, who in you is Christian? How many of you would jump up right away and be like, this is probably a good thing? All of us would have some pause in our heart because we know not everybody likes Christians. Not everybody wants to acknowledge Christians for the right reason. But here Paul is saying, we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed. And he's pressing this because he knows that our society doesn't like to be forced to look into the mirror of the gospel and see themselves as God sees them. You see, the danger and the hard part about humanity when it comes to, or about Christianity, is that when we encounter it, we not only see what's wrong with humanity as a whole, but we have to see what's wrong with me as a person. It's deeply revealing of our own hearts. So why? We're at this point. Paul is saying humanity is bad. Paul is saying you are bad. Paul is saying the Gentile believers or the Gentiles are bad. Why? That's a good question. If you're evangelizing to someone in class, well, not in class, class that's disrespectful, after class, um, you're inviting them to GCF to say, why do I need this? Why do I need this gospel in my life? Why do we fear light? Why do we harbor our hearts from people? Why do we thrive when the lights are off and walk with tepidness and awareness and vulnerability when the lights turn on? Look back at what Paul says in verse 18. For the wrath of God 
He's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now pay attention to this phrase. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, pay attention. We're going to put on our grammar hats here, okay? Their unrighteous hearts suppress the truth. You see, they're not unrighteous because they suppress the truth, are they? Look up at that. They suppress the truth because they're unrighteous. They're unaccepting of this truth because they're already broken. And what have they suppressed? What's this truth that he's talking about? He continues in verses 19 through 21. For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, to understand the backdrop of what Paul just said a lot, okay? This passage we're going through in 40 minutes would take uh, a book this big to go through if you wanted to extract everything. So we're really flying by here. But in order to understand what Paul is saying, we need to understand the presuppositions of what Paul is believing. Okay, what's undergirding everything that Paul is saying here? And Paul is basing his argument in the truth that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And not just that God created because it makes a better storybook in, uh, intro. He's saying this because God created it perfect and good. Not simply because it was unpolluted and free from sin, although that was true. But God created it good, and it was good because he created man, and man was created in perfect relationship with him. When God set the framework for what it means to be truly human, for what it means to understand humanity at its fullest extent, it was to live on this earth in perfect relationship with God. And in that created spot, we had rightness before God. We were righteous before God. We were accepted by God, not because it was added to our humanity a little later to make us shinier in creation, but because we were in right relationship. Right relationship with God equals righteousness of God. And in creation, we had it perfectly, wonderfully, wholly. But when we sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, they destroyed this relationship. Paul in Romans is going to continue, and we'll see in a few weeks, he says that you had life, and you chose death, and now death reigns. God used to reign, but your choice of sin allowed death to reign. And death reigns not only because we have sin, but more importantly, it, it reigns because we're born subhuman. We're born apart from God, separated from him by our immediate lack of worship. To be born and to refuse to acknowledge God and worship God is to be born dead to your sin, separated from God, ungodly and unrighteous. You see, I have this beautiful eight-month-old daughter. Adley is not pure, trending impure, as she figures out how to like boys and the sin that comes with that, um, as she figures out how to lie to her dad, as she figures out how to hate and how to hit. She's not pure now and trending impure. 
My daughter is impure right now at eight months, and by the grace of God in her life, she might one day become pure by Christ. But at our core, where we stand, we are apart from God. And what Paul is saying here is that your problem is that you're separate from God, and not only that you're separate, but also that you're guilty. And you're guilty because God has woven into creation traces of himself. And what does that mean? That God has woven into creation traces of himself. Well, I mean that no one stands before a sunset or a sunrise, right? Think back to your families we just made. Uh, No one stands before that and thinks about how great the internet is, right? No one goes to Glacier National Park and they're like, man, the Golden Gate Bridge is a great triumph of human engineering. Why? Why? Because we go there and we see this creation and not because it's vast, but because God has so designed it, it makes our hearts echo for something more. We resonate with this deepness and this hollowness that's being exposed by sitting in front of nature's glory. And day after day after day, we reject that call. And here's the thing. Creation's call, the psalm says, day after day you pour forth his praise. The creation day will not stop pointing to God. But creation has not won our hearts because creation isn't strong enough to solve our relational gap. Right? Uh, Ansel Adams, right? Yosemite, you guys know Ansel Adams, pioneer of hiking, uh, uh, painter, photographer, says nature is God's cathedral. We go to nature to know God. You could spend your life in nature. You could go to the seven wonders of the world and you could see them and you could spend time with them, but never will that nature, left to its own, solve your relationship gap with God. It's not strong enough to break the cycle of sin. Creation can't save us. Only a creator can. And as Paul says, this creator has been clearly perceived so much so that we can know God. That's what he says, right? He says, they know God and yet do not honor him or give him worth. Everyone knows God. Atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, Hindus, they all know God. That's the problem. That's why they're sinners. To know God and not worship God is to live a life of sin. To show how this impacts our life, Paul is going to give three exchanges that happen. Because what does this mean? What does it mean to not worship God? Why does that matter for us? I feel good, you feel good, we all feel good, let's get hands hold together and we'll figure it out. Why does it matter? Not just, not just in the end, not just in terms of judgment, why does it matter right now for your good? Why does it matter that you're sinful? Why does it matter that you're separate from God? Paul nails that with three exchanges here. The first exchange we're going to see, um, because of the suppression of truth we saw, is this, the exchange of glory. Romans 1, 22 through 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It's pretty poignant, isn't it? Thinking they do, did what was best for them, they acted like idiots. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So in the garden, okay, Paul's backdrop is creation. In the garden, before sin, we had the glory of God. We had access, we had audience to greatest joy, to most, the most perfect object of holy nature, an infinite God, right? 
We see, uh, we, we just, I watched the Republican national, or Republican debate last night, and everyone pointed back towards their encounter they had with Ronald Reagan, as if to shake hands with Ronald Reagan was this glorious uh, affirmation of you to be the next president of the United States. And it was a big deal for them. We had access, not to Ronald Reagan, to God. God didn't make B-movies. God was God. He was infinite. He was powerful. And we had access to him. And because our hearts became foolish and darkened, see, because of the heart, we exchanged the glory of the real God with the replacement glory of faulty substitutes. I like what, what he said. We had the glory of God and we exchanged it for images. Not even for something real. For images of what mortal man now, we can't figure out how to cure the cold. We can't figure out that you put a period before something on Twitter if you want to be seen by people other than your followers. Right? Man, we make crappy gods. He points back to creation. You made images of birds and creeping things. You were created over them. You were created to rule over them, and you're worshiping them. Man, you missed it. See, we used to be amazed because we were able to see the worthiness of God, the glory of God, the attractiveness of God because he was worthy. But here's the thing. But in the dimming of our eyes, the blinding of our hearts that came through sin, so also dimmed our affections. And where affection for God is dim, the attraction of idols burns bright. And that's what's happened in our hearts. Now we become amazed and enthralled at the stupidest things, don't we? Today, I was writing the sermon, right? Doing the Lord's work, writing a sermon. And I found out that I had actually won my fantasy football game that I thought I lost. And it put me on like a 20-minute side tour of crazy town in my brain. Um, it's just stupid. It's fantasy. It's not even real football, it's the first week. I didn't even make the playoffs. I just went from 0-1 to 1-0. Big deal. But I was just like, oh my goodness, let's stop what we're doing and look at sports stuff. Man, we, we're so amazed at this, the dumb things in our life. And, and the fickleness of our heart proves our, our folly. It proves the curse. You see, we're myopic. We really are. Even on a macro level, even as a culture, we try to focus on the greater good. We're so myopic. We're so, we have such a narrow, small vision of things. As C.S. Lewis said, the problem with the hearts of man is not that it remains unsatisfied, it's that it's far too easily satisfied. And we worship trivial things because we've exchanged real glory for false glory. And because of that, there's no standard to capture the affection of our hearts. We had reality, we exchanged it for a false one. That's exchange number one. Second exchange is seen here, verses 24 through 25. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, the problems with our heart is that John Calvin uh, calls them an idol factory. Our hearts love to worship things and to make up things um, that we worship. And when our, this is a subset of what happened first. Because we saw things as greater worth and glory than God, we can't just see them and be like, oh, that's neat. 
our hearts see them, we desire to worship them. We've become disillusioned to the glory of God, and we not only treasure things above him, but we worship things above him. We think we find joy in the vices of this world, but in all reality, we worship them, and as a result, we become enslaved to them. And our passions and our desires rule over us like a poor king, because that's all they are. To entrust your life wholly to the pursuit of sex, to thrill, to adventure, to uh, scholasticism, to knowledge, to degrees, to friendship, to riches, to the world, is not to find satisfaction in any of them. It really only finds slavery in all of them. Because those things can't satisfy. They won't satisfy. Isn't it funny that in all of the cultures, there's never been one person who stood up, the richest, wealthiest, smartest person, and be like, guys, I'm completely content. Do what I did. You'll be good. Every culture has been left lacking because the things culture turns to will never satisfy. They ultimately, and you've see, probably seen this in your own heart, when your affection is tied to something trivial like fantasy football, we just become frustrated and burdened by it. We become easily disheartened and depressed that the objects of our affection don't bring us ultimate salvation or joy. This leads us to this stark final exchange that Paul gives us. Verses 26 through 27. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. So Paul references homosexuality here. And we're not going to talk much about homosexuality, but given what culture has said about that lately, let me make it clear. Paul sees it as a sin. The Old Testament sees it as a sin. The rest of the New Testament writers see it as a sin. However, the reason Paul is talking about this here is not to emphasize uh, the chief sin of homosexuality, that all other sins are, you know, sub-thing, but if you're a homosexual man, that's a chief sin. You've got to fix that. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's emphasizing something here to show something that's really weighty and really heavy. Because what he's saying here is the perversion of affection, right, exchange number one, our affections have been perverted, leads to a perversion of worship, right, exchange number two, which leaves us less than human. You see, this final exchange is the exchange of humanity. And we can't even figure out how to do sex right. And what that really shows is this. It shows that it's the pinnacle of perversion, not the chief sin. He's showing it for emphasis. It's the pinnacle of perversion where we live in a world of self-love and the only things we can adequately love are things that look exactly like us, act like us, are like us. It's innately selfish. It's not other-oriented. It's not for the glory of God. It's man-fixed, self-obsessed selfishness and it's repulsive to the nth degree. And why Paul is saying this is not to, so that we can get together today and make a polemic that to be gay is to just be the worst person in the world. What he's saying is a matter of priority here. Paul's message is that homosexuality is a sin. But what Paul is not saying is stop being gay and you'll figure it out. It's not what Paul's saying. Because the reason he's putting this in here the reason it's in this uh, priority is that the homosexual lifestyle is only a symptom 
of a broken heart. That's it. It's a symptom of a broken, fallen, perverted heart, one which men everywhere are born with. We all have hearts, dirty, perverted, broken, introverted, and disgusting. And we see this broad layer coming up with the next verse that opens with this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He actually says this after each of the exchanges, maybe you saw it. There's an exchange, and it says God gave them up. There's an exchange, God gave them up. There's an exchange, and God gave them up. See, we live in a world which on one hand says everything's okay. We're going to figure it out. Right? The millennials have got this down. We invented Instagram and Pinterest. We'll figure it out from here. But on the other hand, we know this world's broken. And people are going to varying like, it's because we've we, we got to fix the environment. It's because we've got to fix the president. It's because we've got to fix technology. We've got to fix the economy. We've got to fix all these things. But that's, we're still missing the point. You want to see that humanity is broken? It doesn't take this knowledge of, of total depravity, which is what Paul's talking about here. It doesn't take you moving and living in the slums of South Africa for a year. You know what it takes? It takes you to pick up a newspaper and open to the obituary section. Guess what? People are dying. You're dying. Humanity's broken. If this is the best we have, that's a bummer. There are places that I'd like to go to that I'll never get to go to. Some because I don't have money, some because I'll die before then. We have a problem. It's terminal, it's pervasive, and it's everywhere. Something is not right. So what is wrong with us? I have this red thing on my neck. And uh, my dermatologist friend, this is what's wrong with you, is my red thing. Uh, my dermatologist friend, she says to me, it's some fancy word, it starts with vascular, but I don't get it because it has to do with like your heart, and that's not my heart, but uh, she's probably wrong. But it's this <laughs> vascular bumpeth reddeth. Uh, and and uh, my son likes to, to sit on my lap, and he likes to pick at it. And he's like, Dad, you got an owie. And he says, Daddy, what, what did this to you? I'm like, oh, n nothing did that to me. He's like, but what did you do? I, I didn't do anything, Owen. But who did this to you, right? We, all, we get scratched. We get scratched by tables. We get scratched by people. Get scratched by our baby sisters. And, and, and Owen just couldn't wrap his mind around it. What he couldn't understand was it was nothing from the outside which caused me to have this blemish. But it was a problem on the inside. And that's the hardest thing for our culture to understand, is that there's nothing external that leads to our problem. Those are all symptoms. The real problem is that we have a broken heart, and that's what it means. When God, the most ominous thing you should see in this text is those three, four words, God gave them up. He didn't give us up to human flourishing. He didn't give us, kick us out of the house like I could kick out a rebellious son and say, fine, go figure out something better somewhere else. He didn't give it up to a fantastic experience or enlightened living. God gave us up to the darkest function of humanity, your own heart. You want to see what lives in your heart apart from God? 
This is what lives in your heart. 28 through 32. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. James goes on in James chapter 3, and he says, what causes conflicts and quarrels among you? He says, is it not your own passions at war within you? You see, we're not unrighteous and apart from God because we chose to sin. We sin because the moment we become alive, we're already unrighteous. You're not the solution. You're the problem. See, jewelers do this thing when they show a diamond. They always take a diamond out and they put it on this black cloth. It's because against this black cloth, you begin to see um, the, the shimmer of the diamond, the different factions of light that come in and bounce out. You see its beauty on a different level. This passage in Romans, and really the next two chapters we'll see, this is the black cloth of our heart revealing the goodness and beauty of the gospel. You see, our problem is that we're dead, broken, insolent inventors of evil and suppressors of God's truth, deserving objects of God's wrath. That's what we are. What is our solution? Our solution, it says, is to be righteous. The righteous shall live by faith. However, this righteousness is not something you do. You can't go out and say, I'm not going to be insolent. I'm not going to be a hater of God. I'm not going to disobey my parents. I'm not going to be foolish. I'm not going to be filled with hate. I'm not going to be a murderer. I'm not going to be one who seeds strife. I'm not going to be deceitful. I'm not going to be malicious. This righteousness is not something you could do, accomplish, hope for, labor for, discover, find, become enlightened to. You can't apply it. You can't put it on this righteousness which stands antithetical to everything we just saw, the root of the human problem, the disease of our flesh, this righteousness, this saving righteousness is something to be believed in. That's it. Look at what he says. Look back. What is he not ashamed of? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed for, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Not apart from faith, not maybe faith at a later date. You will live. Why? Because you believe. You see, the good news is that while we are overwhelmed at our present condition, the gospel is power enough, powerful enough not to wait until we get 80% of the way there, not to wait until we can kill our sin, but to bring Jesus down on the cross who died for our sin. He came to us. It wasn't 90-10. It wasn't 50-50. Jesus went 100 out. He came to the earth. He bore your sin. He died your death. He inherited our shame. He drank our death. He absorbed God's wrath. 
And while our problem is pervasive and contagious to anyone born into this earth, so too is the solution. There is nothing more broad than the call to gospel obedience and faith in Jesus Christ. You see, this is the beauty of Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel and the bad news of men that Jesus came to save sinners. The righteousness of God is not only an attribute of God. The righteousness of God is God's salvific activity set forth to work for the redemption of his people so that we can have life and life to the fullest. And the only way you can believe this is if God is gracious in giving you faith to see. You see, Paul is really just setting us up for the remainder of this book. I ask you to stay, to see why this is important, to see how it interacts with your life, to hear, see, and know the fullness of God's glory with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that how arrogant hateful, yet fair it would be for you to see man in our need and not tell us what's wrong. Yet in your mercy, you have first shown us our need. We are broken. We're reminded of it every day when we stub our toe, when we have conflict among us, when our hearts are disheartened. We know we are imperfect. We know we need help. But more than just revealing that, you sent your son to die for that. So Lord, make us righteous through the act of belief. Reveal, us, uh, reveal to us our need and then show us Jesus as our source that we may believe and we may have life through the righteousness that comes through faith. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.